is Co-Discovery. Hello and welcome to this episode of Core Discovery with me, Abigail Acton. September 2023 was roughly 1.75 degrees warmer compared to the pre-industrial period. It was also 0.93 degrees C warmer than the 1991-2020 baseline, which is used as a practical tool for climate-sensitive sectors like agriculture, according to the World Meteorological Organization. Climate change is here. So what are we doing to meet the challenges in Europe? Ahead of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP23, we will be hearing from four cutting-edge researchers who are working to get us ready to deal with the coming changes to our environment. Tracking mosquitoes that carry diseases more often associated with the Global South, protecting our woodlands and forests from the impact of destructive beetles and other factors, examining the impact of extreme storms on our architecture, and working out how to keep people safe from waves that are higher than ever, overtopping coastal defences that were designed in another era. This episode is on adapting to climate change in Europe. Here to talk us through these ideas are our guests, whose work has been funded by the European Union. Joao Encanasau is the CEO of Iridian. He has an MSc in biochemical engineering and a PhD in sensors. He's particularly interested in the development of IoT, Internet of Things, sensors for insects with impact on public health, food, safety and biodiversity. Welcome, Joao. Hi, Abigail. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Guillaume Marie is an independent researcher, mainly working in ecological modeling, with a strong focus in natural disturbance in interaction with human activities. He is an active developer of Orchidie, the French land surface model used by the UN to predict climate change. Welcome, Guillaume. Thank you very much. Lovely to have you. Marie-Pierre Repetto is Professor of Structural Engineering at the University of Genova in Italy. Her main interest is in wind engineering, analyzing the impact of wind on urban and natural environments. Welcome, Marie. Hello, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Corrado Altomare is a postdoc researcher at the Maritime Engineering Laboratory of UPC in Barcelona and is actively involved in mounting Europe's response to the problem of wave overtopping. Corrado is particularly interested in studying the effect of sea waves on coastal structures and wave energy devices. Hi, Corrado. Hi, Abigail. Hi, everybody. Very happy to be here. And we're happy to have you. Zhao. The VECTRAC project wanted to find a new way of obtaining high-quality field information about the presence of mosquitoes that could be vectors of West Nile fever in Europe. Can you tell us what the impact of a warming planet is having on disease-carrying mosquitoes, please? Um, West Nile fever isn't something normally that one would associate with the European Union. How is that affecting Europe now and, and how might it affect it in the future? Well, actually, the West Nile virus is becoming increasingly uh, common in the European Union. Unfortunately, it's an arbovirus that is transmitted by the autochthonous mosquito in Europe, the Colexpipian. And um, the issue is that besides the West Nile virus, there's a danger that Europe will start importing arboviruses that usually occur on the southern hemisphere of the planet, like dengue, yellow fever, Zika virus. And those are carried by invasive mosquitoes, like the Aedes albopictus mosquitoes, the famous tiger mosquito that came from Asia. And due to, to, the, to the increase of uh, the temperature, um, the climate in Europe is becoming more and more suitable for those mosquitoes that come from the southern hemisphere. So um, it's, it's a no-brainer. If the average temperature increases, we are creating the perfect conditions for mosquitoes to colonize the territory. And it's what, what is happening all over Europe. 
Okay, you say it's happening already. Um, I mean, it's not something that one, again, I, as I said before, it's not something that one necessarily associates with Europe. Are, so are there cases of, of people catching these diseases from mosquitoes natively in Europe right now? I can tell you a couple of, uh, some of the latest cases. We had reports uh, of um, tourists uh, getting dengue in Ibiza. There were also cases of dengue in France, if I'm not mistaken. And um, you have cases of malaria in Greece. The issue is that this is the kind of information that is available publicly if you consult the webpage of the European Centre for Disease Control, but it's something that the general public doesn't do, of course. So you may say that this is the kind of information that circulates among um, people that handle this kind of problem, public health technicians or people like me that are interested in developing technology to to help them uh, solve this problem. Right. So that makes your work and your project very, very timely. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Vectrack has developed to counter this threat? The biggest challenge that you have when you have vectors that are capable of carrying diseases is that to stop the transmission, which is paramount to stop the outbreak, you have to monitor and control the vector. Let's look at uh, the coronavirus. Humans are the vector. How did the World Health Organization and all the public health agencies in the world decided to stop the vector? Everybody locked down at their homes. You cannot do that with a mosquito. The mosquito roams freely out there, meaning that people are exposed to that vector. So that's quite a, a high-risk situation because if you have an outbreak of a disease carried by a mosquito, as it happens normally in southern hemisphere countries, like for instance, I don't know, the capital of Brazil, Brasilia, you get out to go to work, have a coffee, and you can be beaten and get dengue. Here in Europe, that's unthinkable. However, people there, they still live there and try to do their normal life. Here, the issue is that in the last 100 years, the technology to monitor mosquitoes hasn't changed a lot. So basically what entomologists do is that they deploy traps that capture mosquitoes, and with that they have an idea of the abundance and the type of mosquitoes that are being captured. Everything is done manually, everything. So the idea that we had was, what if traps could be smart enough to acquire the information automatically and send it to a computer? That way, entomologists would acquire the information automatically and basically in real time, and that would increase not only their time of response, but also save a lot of money in field work. And since the, 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 the technology is aimed at saving time and uh, acquiring data as fast as possible, that means that with that, we can improve the, a lot the way public health agencies or vector control technicians can fight the vector to prevent the outbreak of the disease. With current state-of-the-art, and we actually time this, if you have an increase of, of a certain vector, let's say Kulix pipin, that can transmit the West Nile virus, for a standard public health agency with a standard lab where everything is collected manually and then the samples are taken to lab and they, are put to, they, are, they, put, they put the samples in a freezer and then they have to find the time to inspect those samples. I can tell you that if today we had an explosion of Kulik species anywhere in, uh, in Barcelona or in Lisbon or in Berlin or in Paris, whatever, uh, the public health agency in charge of uh, monitoring that, those vectors will probably know that it was happening 15 days later. Wow. With our technology, we know it when it's happening. 
while it's happening. In real time. In real time. Yeah. Now you need to absolutely, this is fantastic information because we have 15 days with, with the population increasing and exposure and all the rest of it. So this is a really remarkable difference in time frame. So now I need you to tell me a little bit more about actually what you've developed. So I know that it's optical thermosensors and so on, but please tell us more because frankly, the idea of a sensor that can identify not just the species, but also the gender, you're only interested in the females, um, that's just blows my mind. So please tell me a little bit more about these sensors and how does it all come together? The sensor is what we call an extinction sensor. Basically, what we measure is how much light is blocked by a mosquito when the mosquito crosses a field of near-infrared light. With a sensor, we analyze not only the morphology of the insect, but we also track the kinetics, how the insect moves. That generates a spectrum that is like a fingerprint that has all the information about the insect. And then using machine learning techniques, we teach a model to interpret that data. And every time the model sees a specific mosquito, he will tell, oh, I've seen this one before. This is that. That's fantastic. The sensor can say, look, you have a fair amount of females of this species that is dangerous that were captured at trap number 59. You go there and take a sample immediately. And when you get the information that, A, we start having the circulation of disease, that can also be included in the model. So then besides having models that tell you how mosquitoes are spreading, you can include information about viruses. And then you start having models that tell you what is the risk of viral circulation in the, the mosquito population and how that can impact on human population. And that's fantastic. This has never been done before. And this is actually ongoing work that is happening after the conclusion of that track. I know that you ran some pilot studies involving public health authorities to, to stress test and to prove the technology. And in fact, you had excellent results, didn't you? Yes, indeed. We've uh, conducted trials with public health entities in uh, Spain, in Portugal, also in Brazil, and uh, we have ongoing uh, pilots happening with, in other countries. We've managed to prove that our technology can automatically differentiate these mosquitoes from other insects and can tell the species and the sex with average accuracies that are above 85%. Thanks to Vectrack, we have recently found out two very interesting things. We've recently found that we can determine the age of the mosquitoes and tell if they are young mosquitoes less than five days or more than five days, meaning that if they, they are females with less than five days, they are not a high-risk female to transmit diseases. But after five days, those females start getting more and more competent for in infecting uh, uh, humans. And I have to also tell you that we've doubled the beat with can the sensor also tell the difference between a female infected with Zika virus or not? Wow. And that is also something that will be published soon. That's amazing. I was a bit skeptical, but the results were quite intriguing, let's say. Let's leave it at that. Oh, okay. That's a teaser, isn't it? Well, that would yes, just be amazing. Teaser, yeah. yeah, that would just be. Given, given the spread of Zika, that would just be amazing. This is excellent work you're doing, Joao. Thank you. Does anyone have any questions for Joao? Yes, Guillaume. Joao, uh, the sensor you develop, do you think they can be adapted to bark beetles uh, flying insect or in general in, in other flying insects? If it's a flying insect, our tech will detect it. The, the secret is 
we develop the sensor, but then you have to have a trapping system that is designed for the particular species because trapping insects is not a trivial thing. Incredibly, if it flies, it can be identified. We can develop a model to identify it automatically. That would be particularly useful for the sandflies in Leishmania. That's one of the things that people are very interested in. We know that in mosquito traps, those kind of flies that transmit Leishmania, they also fall in our trap and we can see them in our data. Mm. That's that's basically, uh, Abigail, those are episodes for the next season. Yes. Yeah. Well, I could just talk with you all day. But listen, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you, Abigail. You're very welcome. Guillaume, I'm going to turn to you now. The Climpro project asks whether a new generation of forest management is needed in the face of coming challenges. And one of these is the hugely destructive pest known as the bark beetle. So Guillaume, you're also interested in how climate change will affect insect populations. Thank you. Two things. First, it's like bark beetles are not in natural situation. They are not really destructive. They are part of the dynamics of the forest. So it's not something... Uh, we can append to, to bark beetles. It's really something we can, uh, uh, the cause is really the, the, the human and for two things. The first thing is that bark beetles, the like heat and because of our impact on, on, on the temperature, bark beetles can, um, increase the number of generation they can, they can do in one year. The second point, it's more about the fact that forestry they really um, plant like spruce, Norway spruce, in region where it's not, uh, it was not naturally occurred, uh, especially in the lowland. So normally spruce is for a high mountain and very north uh, Europe. But because of that, because of these two things, we put a fertile uh, ground for for the for the bark beetles because now they can really prolif- proliferate and attacks a lot of forest in Europe. So basically, we're providing well, not providing, we're creating the higher temperature that favors proliferation, as you say, and then we're also changing the habitat because we're bringing these trees into places that are not indigenous for them. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Just to give you some number, it's like. If you have, uh, let's say, one trees that are attacked by, uh, let's say, uh, 500 uh, beetle, bark beetles, they will kill it. But these 500 bark beetles, they will produce 20,000 bark beetles. And after that, the spread can go very fast, especially if instead of one generation per year, you produce three generations like it occurred now in Europe. And that's happening already? Yeah, already. It's already there. In terms of ecology, the, the bark beetles is not a huge uh, threat because yes, some tree will die, but you will have a dynamic of regeneration and regrowth and you will have a new forest, etc. The problem is economic because the wood and especially the spruce wood, it's a very valuable wood market. And when this bark beetle outbreak happen, you suddenly have a lot of wood available on the market because they have to cut it, they have to sell it, and also because you have to store and stock this wood. And all these things, they cost a lot for the manager. And here we are talking about an economic disaster, not a natural disaster. It's something very different, and I want to be uh, to highlight that. 
Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, it's an important difference. Absolutely. Um, so what did your project try to do to to counter this? What what was Klimpro's approach here? So Klimpro, it's uh, really, um, I would say, a modeling project because what we're trying to do, it's include this kind of disturbances when we account for carbon balance at large scale. So we are using a, a model, a land surface model called Orchidae. So it's a model that simulate the surface of the planet. So it's really meant to be large scale. And uh, this kind of model, they are coupled with um, what we call um, general circulation models. And with that, we can predict what would be the, the future climate. So it's uh, really a big piece of this uh, kind of prediction. We need to know if like disturbances, drastic disturbances, they have an impact on this kind of release. Because before that, I would say the classic way of including mortality, tree mortality, is by taking fixed mortality rate. Let's say 1% per year. So every year we remove 1%. As you can uh, understand, it's very smooth. So there is no abrupt event. And what we want to see is when we uh, remove this uh, this background, this 1%, and replace it by abrupt event of 20-30% mortality, what would happen in the function of this ecosystem? And if this uh, drastic event will affect the, the release of CO2 in the atmosphere. And when you ran these simulations, what did you find? And, and how do you hope this information can be used? When we run simulation, we start thinking, okay, we will see... Um, uh, some effect on everything, but the first things we see, it's like barbital, they, they thin the forest and they act as a manager in, in the end. It was really uh, interesting to see that. So without any uh, referring to economy, you just see like barbitals acting as, as manager. But when we look at the, the glob global net carbon emission over a large period of time, we see that not including disturbances can really underestimate the net flux of, of CO2 into, into the atmosphere. So we are really convinced right now that uh, we, we need to include it. Yeah, Yeah, sure, sure. So what you're saying is that if you don't actually track what's happening to the forest accurately with regards to the possibility of a, a large-scale sudden impact, you can't assess how much carbon dioxide is going to be trapped by the forests. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying released by the forest. That's confusing me slightly. No, really, sorry. Yeah, because we trapped. But what we are interested in, it's the net release. So ah, yes. what they keep minus what they release. Okay, that's fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. That's that's excellent. I'm just going to turn now actually to Marie. Um, Thunder set out to create a model for thunderstorm outflows and the impact that they have um, on the urban environment. I've never really thought about the impact of wind on buildings, Marie. Can you explain why we should be bearing it in mind, actually? Yes, uh, wind is uh, one of the most dangerous and costly natural hazard. Wind loading is always considered as a main action uh, in the design of buildings. But what is new now is uh, uh, the impact of thunderstorm winds, uh, which is particularly intense and uh, destructive. Moreover, uh, many studies indicate that uh, their intense, the intensity and the frequency of this kind of events uh, may grow due to the uh, climate change. Thunderstorms are um, meteorological phenomena that are generated in a small area and evolve in a few minutes. And during those events, 
a bulk of cold hair falls down, down impinging the ground and spreading radially. And this is called downburst because it's something similar to an explosion of hair. And it generates a large vortex uh, with a strong velocity and a large uh, energy also. So if this downburst hits a building, it can cause serious damages and also dangerous situation. So, Maria, what have people been doing um, up until now? Thunderstorms are present from uh, uh, ever and ever, but now they are increasing in uh, their uh, intensity and in frequency. And we are seeing many, many more damages uh, in uh, buildings, uh, typically low-rise buildings uh, or flexible buildings, uh, poles uh, uh, and also bridges. So... What were you actually doing with your project? You, you wanted, I think, to to improve the ability to uh, to plan for architects, no? The aim of our project uh, is to bring together experts from different sectors like meteorology, like engineering or uh, atmospheric physics to study together the problem and to produce models that uh, can be used uh, from architects and engineers. And how did you go about producing these models? What sort of tools and techniques did you use? So, uh, you know, uh, air is something invisible uh, and uh, while uh, waves and vortexes uh, uh, can be seen and observed in uh, water and sea, the same phenomena can happen in the air but cannot be seen. So, our first aim was to improve the capability to detect the, down the downburst and the thunderstorm development. So we managed to use uh, a variety of sensors to detect the wind strength, uh, direction, and to catch how the downburst move. We installed uh, a, a very sophisticated LiDAR, which is uh, able to measure the way the outflow of the thunderstorm develops and change during the, the storms itself. I'm just going to stop you for a second. So LIDAR is, uh, is a mechanism by which you can look at the surface of, uh, of a certain structure and see the impact of what's happening on the surface. Is that correct? Yes, this is uh, one of the possible use of the LIDAR. Mm -hmm. uh, in the air, uh, we use it to measure the movement of the particles so we can reproduce in some way uh, the wind flow so basically, you're almost making it visible. You know, you were just saying that you could see it in water. Yeah. So it's a way of making air and, and the vortexes and the downblasts visible so you can actually see what's happening with the thunderstorm. Is that right? Yes. Right. It, this is uh, exactly the idea, to uh -huh. see the phenomena, to see the vortex and to see how they move inside of the air. The second part was uh, to reproduce this kind of uh, phenomenon uh, by means of experiment in a very special wind tunnel in Canada, and also to reproduce it numerically. This actually sounds like a lot of fun. Yes. I think this, this does sound like it sounds really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and also in this case, we tried to visualize the wind flow in the wind tunnel, uh, and we have a beautiful uh, picture of this primary vortex, it's called, that, uh, uh, that uh, hit uh, the, the laboratory uh, people also. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and also, uh, finally, we detected the impact on structure 
uh, and we tried to develop uh, a model. And in this case, uh, we were inspired by a method adopted in the earthquake or blast effects, because in some way, the evolution of the thunderstorm action is something similar, very rapid and very energetic, but short in time. Yeah. So. Okay, thank you very much. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Corrado? Your project uh, considered the fact that low-lying coastal areas are very vulnerable to rising sea levels, as, as we, we appreciate, and the towering waves produced by storms as they get perhaps potentially more uh, aggressive, if one can use that word. Um, Dirk Wave wanted to uh, develop models, again models, uh, to reflect the situation as it is now, and that will evolve to help people estimate the vulnerability of coastal zones to climate change. Um, Corrado, what inspired you to get involved with this area of research? Well, Abigail, you know, I'm, I'm from a coastal town from the Adriatic Sea. So, well, I live uh, along the sea uh, and I was always fascinated by all these kind of, of processes. I'm still the one that is running to the coast or the, and a harbor to, to see where there is a storm, what is happening there. So, yeah, this, this phenomenon that we call like overtopping is where when the water passes over the, the, the structure you know, and, and can generate flooding and can generate a, a lot of uh, problems and uh, damages and also can represent uh, a risk scenarios for, for, for people, for pedestrians, for people living there. So yeah, just imagine that 40% of the population in the world live along the coastline. Now making a number in Europe, this means 80 million people and the trend is increasing. And uh, beside that, we have climate change sea level rise. As Maria said, also more storms, more unpredictable sometimes storms. So all this combination makes that we have to look more in deep to what is this kind of wave overtopping that is very common, but at the same time, very diverse and very different from side to side. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because I mean, it sounds relatively simple, wave overtopping, very, very large wave out of control coming into land and overtopping something. But of course, it must be entirely context dependent. I mean, it's not only the context of the particular storm and the particular wind direction, but also the infrastructure and so on and so on. So it must be difficult to model something that has so many different types of criteria. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that process? What did Dirko Wave want to do? Uh, you've explained why a little bit, but perhaps you could tell me how a little bit. Yeah, well, that way I wanted to contribute, let's say, to, to enhance the design of, of coastal defences, but especially, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, those coastal defences in, uh, in, in urbanised coastal areas. So to do that, uh, to do that dark wave, um, pretended to combine different tools. So from one side, we have, again, modelling, experimental modelling, lab tests, okay, in a wave flume. Usually I say, if I have to explain to my four years daughter what I do for work, I say, I play doing uh, waves. And it's true. We do waves in a flume and uh, we, we measure certain results. And then we do numerically. So we do with uh, some solver that, uh, in particular in dark wave, was a particle-based solver. And uh, what does that mean? Sorry, Corrado, I'm stepping in here. What do you mean particle-based solver? What is this? Well, we have two kinds of, let's say, uh, approaches. A more traditional one that where you uh, discretize an element that can be your fluid, your water, let's say, in a set of points, and then you calculate what is happening there. 
like, like you are measuring in one point in space what is happening, just to explain simply. And then you have this kind of, uh, they are called Lagrangian approaches, where actually your water is, is made of a sort of uh, uh, a set of particles that are free to move. It's very, let's say, from an intuitive point of view, it's very easy to understand if, if you look at some video or some animation or, or some simulation of it. So in that sense, among all the, this kind of, of, of of method and and uh, and model, I have used a particular one and a particular model that is called dualist physics, which has been used to reproduce wave overtopping for specific coastal layouts. Okay, I get it. So basically, using just like a point concept is 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 a little bit too reductive and a little bit too simplistic. And what you actually want to do is simulate the movement of a body of water. Correct. And that body of water is made up of a multiplicity of particles. And so you look at the whole thing and how it moves together, rather than just, for example, plotting peaks and troughs and so on. And the point of having this kind of points of particles that are moving, it means that it's inherently easy to model very, let's say, violent phenomena. Is this the whole time that a storm in the Project Durka Wave, is that the whole time that a storm was simulated from start to finish? In a uh, particles maze method, as I mentioned before, yes, yes. Actually, uh, what what we did, what I did, was to simulate an old storm. And when I say an old storm, it means like uh, a storm lasting one thousand waves. Imagine three hours in reality, something like that. So that was the first the first time. Yes. And what sort of things are your simulations showing us? What are you learning? What do we need to know? <laughs> yeah, all these. All we have done experimentally and numerically, and numerically was meant to gain further insight into uh, what we call overtopping flow properties. That, in a nutshell, means the velocities of these flows, and let's say the quantity of water, or if you like, the high of this flow where is uh, is flooding. Why that? Because the combination of velocity and uh, uh, flow high or flow depth, if you like, is very important for the safety of the people, for people's stability, you can feel a flow where, it's, where, it's, where you are your feet into it, whether it's faster, whether it's bigger, etc., etc. So it can cause casualties, but also can be related to uh, security of infrastructure and uh, your amenities along the coastline, etc., etc. Okay, and are you starting to see that architects and planners are taking into consideration the kind of models that you're producing? Or is there interest in, in that kind of sector? Well, I'm happy to say yes. You know, when I was uh, carrying out the project, just a big, ton, a big storm hit the uh, southern coast of France and the Mediterranean coast of Spain. We have several damages, and uh, some local authorities uh, started to implement the outcomes, but also the method of the earthquake project in some arbor to study what happened actually during this storm that was called Gloria, or like a pier structure just north of Barcelona here in Spain where I am. So I have seen that that little by little, this kind of method and outcomes are becoming more and more popular and used by local authorities. Yeah, yeah, and planners maybe. Okay, super. Thank you very much, Corrado. And I must just mention that I love your surname in connection to your work because it means high seas. Yeah. <laughs> How appropriate is that? How appropriate is that? Well, thank you very much indeed for spending time with me today to discuss your important work. And it is indeed important given the fact that we are in all probability, due for more of these changes in the near future. So thanks for spending your time with me today. Thanks, Abigail. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.
If you've enjoyed this podcast and are interested in the latest scientific research coming out of the EU, have a listen to previous episodes. Follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and check out the podcast homepage on the Cordis website. We've considered how chemicals produced in our gut can impact on our brain cells and how plant roots communicate with the bacteria around them. In our last 30 episodes, there'll be something there to tweak your curiosity. Perhaps you're interested in knowing how other EU-funded projects are working to help us adapt to climate change. The Cordis website will give you an insight into the results of projects funded by Horizon 2020 and Horizon Europe that are working in this area. The website has articles and interviews that explore the results of research being conducted in a very broad range of domains and subjects. From photons to neurons, there's something there for you. Maybe you're involved in a project or would like to apply for funding. Take a look at what others are doing in your domain. So come and check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick. We're always happy to hear from you. Drop us a line, editorial at cordis.europa.eu. Until next time.